This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast podcast. Best bits from Monday, October the 30th, where we spoke all things fitness uh, and rather the fitness industry as a whole. Wiped by Fitness Challenge, DFC uh, 30 by 30 got underway over the course of the previous weekend. Uh, one organisation that's very much involved is Gym Nation. In fact, they've been involved since the first edition of the Fitness Challenge. Uh, that's some years ago, 2017. This is now the seventh edition. Co-founder of Gym Nation is Ant Martland. He was in studio to talk about A, their involvement down the years, B, what they're doing differently this year. But C, to look at the sort of economics, if you like, of fitness and the fitness industry uh, and ask whether uh, more people are joining memberships for gyms like Gym Nation uh, during the fitness challenge and whether they hold on to those memberships afterwards. Plus, we talked all things gold. Andrew Naylor, who's the representative of the World Gold Council here in the region, was kind enough to come in uh, to talk about gold demand, uh, latest trends uh, being um, documented in their latest report, uh, supporting the fact that uh, the asset continues uh, to be in much demand across the region. Alex Nichols, meanwhile, is the head of Saudi Arabia's expansion and community at Astro Labs. We wanted Alex to explain a bit more about the January 2024 deadline for global companies to move their regional headquarters to Saudi Arabia if they want to continue doing work in Saudi Arabia. Um, we've had a reminder uh, of that deadline being made by the uh, Saudi authorities over the course of the last couple of days. And that's got a lot of people talking here in the region. What does a global headquarters for a company constitute of? Uh, plus, we are looking ahead to the latest decisions come out of the Fed. They're meeting a little later on this week. Jan Walters, economist at Emirates NBD, gave her thoughts on that. And the other big stories to look out for this week. That's all right here on the Bite Size Business Breakfast podcast. Randy Scott, we are on FedWatch. Yeah, we are indeed. Uh, both from the US, the actual Fed, um, and for the UK as well, Bank of England. So Fed decision on Wednesday, uh, Bank of England decision on Thursday. It's quite a busy day to week actually as well. Bank of Japan will uh, decide what it's doing with interest rates a little bit earlier in the week. But for us, of course, the US is the biggie because... That is the one that impacts what's going to happen to interest rates here. And that's what we've asked John Walters from Emirates NBD. What's the Fed going to be weighing up? What do we expect them to do? And what does it mean for us? The US Federal Reserve Bank will make its next monetary policy decision on Wednesday of this week. Officials at the central bank will be weighing up whether they've done enough to bring inflation back down to their 2% target. Jerome Powell, the Fed chairman, recently highlighted the need for the Fed to move with caution at this meeting, saying that there were a range of uncertainties making the bank's task difficult. These uncertainties are likely to include mixed economic data. For example, Q3 GDP data and consumer spending came in strongly, while on a month-on-month basis, the Fed's preferred measure of inflation actually accelerated into September, leaving it only fractionally lower on an annual basis at 3.7% year-on-year. And data from the University of Michigan Consumer Sentiment Survey released at the end of last week suggests that U.S. households have increased their expectations for one year ahead inflation. On balance, we expect the Fed to hold rates at their current levels with cuts expected from the middle of next year. 
Given the UAE central bank generally moves in lockstep with Fed decisions, this means that we don't expect households or companies in the UAE to be paying more on their loans after this week. Uh, that's Jean Walters from Emirates MBD. Other stories we're looking at today. HQs in Saudi Arabia, Brandy. The ministers in Saudi Arabia have doubled down on a policy announced a couple of years ago that for companies who want to win lucrative government or government-related contracts in Saudi Arabia, they have to have their regional headquarters in Saudi Arabia. Not just a small office with a plaque on the door, but their actual headquarters. What have we heard from the ministers? Yeah, we have indeed. So we have seen the finance minister in Saudi Arabia sit down with Reuters, Mohammed Al-Jadan, and say, look, this deadline is not new, and it is the deadline. It is going to be implemented. So a bit of a message for companies that thought there's going to be wiggle room on that, it'll get pushed back, etc., etc., um, which we know is often a common reaction, don't we, in the, in the wider region to a deadline being set. You've known for a couple of years, I think, is the sort of message in that January the 1st of next year is the date to have a regional HQ. We've got the guys from Astrolabs coming in to talk about what we've actually seen in the amount of people getting actual regional HQ licences, and we're going to find out what the difference is in, in licensing. When is an office an office, and when is it actually a regional HQ? And we know that it means you're not going to be able to get government contracts, but how far does that, if you don't have one, how far does that actually stretch? I mean, we know that there is, you know, actual government, government, private, the public sector, and then you've got a lot of sort of semi-government organisations, government-owned companies, etc. Um, so what could it cover? And if you haven't done it by now, it's two months enough time to get your ducks in a row. Why didn't they announce this during the FII? Oh, they take advantage of the focus being on Saudi Arabia to have this little reminder, but because, but because you, could have, you could have done that when you've got the great and the good of the world. CEOs um, of some of the biggest companies could say, oh, just a quick reminder. <laughs> just note for your diary. Um, look, I'm guessing that, that what has happened is that Reuters have sat down for an interview, and I'm guessing here, but they've sat down for an interview with the finance minister. They've asked the question, could it be delayed? And he's said no. Or they've asked a question about it, and that's why he's clarified it, rather than it being them coming out with an actual sort of all-bands notice, mm. just to remind you. To be fair, the economy minister did sit down with Dan Murphy, who's the CNBC correspondent here in the UAE, and said something similar during FII. So they're, just, they're, they're repeating and reinforcing Re-trading, the message. Yeah, yeah we, it wasn't just a, oh, he misspoke type thing. It's, no, we really are serious about this. But again, it's a definitional thing, isn't it? It sounds really geeky, but what is a regional headquarters rather than the regional headquarters. Yeah, and look, there are a couple of questions and semantics. I mean, there are going to be some lawyers and some CFOs within companies that are looking at the semantics, aren't they? You know, is it a regional HQ? Is it the regional HQ? What is a public company? What is a semi-public company? Um, And I'm very, very much interested in speaking to Alex from Astrolabs about it because there are requirements about, you know, where this fits into your branch network around the world, having a commercial company as well as a regional HQ. So we'll get him to run through all of that with us this morning. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast, exclusively on Dubai. 
dubaii1038.com. Looking at one of the things that certainly had people talking where I've been out and about this weekend, the Saudi finance minister reiterating to Reuters that their 2024 deadline for companies to set up a regional HQ is the deadline. It will not be delayed. And no RHQ, no public sector contracts. Extremely pleased to have in the studio the very dapper Alex Nichols. He's head of Saudi expansion and community at the Setup Specialists Astro Labs. Alex, it's lovely to see you. Thanks for joining us. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. So how busy has your phone been since these comments from the finance minister? Uh, yeah, for sure. There's definitely been an increase in conversations had with uh, major companies looking to set up their regional headquarters now in Saudi Arabia. A lot of these companies that we've been speaking to for a long time, and I think it's kind of reinitiated the conversations that we've been having with these companies the closer we get to the 2024 uh, January 1st deadline. How many companies have got their regional HQs in a row anyway since the initial announcement a couple of years ago? So since the original announcement, about 162 companies by the end of Q3 uh, were set up with regional headquarters licenses. Uh, from my conversations with a couple of the officials in the Ministry of Investment of Saudi Arabia, I think that will be probably over around 200 by the end of the end of the year. Wow. So let's get into semantics, because a lot of people are, when is an office an office and when is it a regional HQ? Yeah, no, it's a good question. Uh, so... Basically, what Ministry of Investment of Saudi Arabia have done, MISA, is actually issued a RHQ license for foreign companies. So that means that any foreign business that's setting up an RHQ in Saudi Arabia actually needs this RHQ license. And it is actually separate and different to the commercial license that a lot of these companies will most likely already have in Saudi Arabia to be executing on the contracts that they're doing for the government uh, entities. Do they need to have both? Yes, in theory, yes. Uh, mainly because if you've got a RHQ license, it will allow you to do RHQ activities. However, it won't actually allow you to do any commercial activities. So any of those companies that are actually executing on their projects presumably will also need a commercial company in Saudi Arabia to then go and execute on the projects that they've won. What is an RHQ activity? So RHQ activities are very much around kind of the, the budgeting and the strategic aspects, maybe some marketing aspects, etc. of the business. But it isn't actually the going out and doing the, for instance, if it was a, we, we've set up a load of kind of construction companies recently in, in Saudi Arabia. If the construction company wanted to actually go and execute on the building of a, for instance, a neon project or they're working with maybe the Ministry of Culture um, then they would need to have that commercial license to be able to execute on those projects. You mentioned Neom, and that's really important because one of the other games of semantics around the <laughs> regional HQ is what counts as a government contract. Strictly government, mega projects, sovereign wealth funds, semi-government companies? Yeah, so it's not 100% clear right now, but from what we're seeing is that the PIF projects, the PIF projects, which includes the likes of NEOM uh, and others, uh, would need an RHQ to be, ex be able to execute on these projects. There are other, as you said, other semantics, maybe the likes of kind of an Aramco or other kind of semi-government uh, entities. What we're seeing is that there's a trend in at least needing, for sure, a commercial license in Saudi Arabia. So we're seeing a lot of companies now go ahead and set up that commercial license. Um, however, the RHQ license is a little bit unsure at the moment as to whether that is needed for some of those uh, projects.
Right. And is it a regional HQ or the regional HQ that you need to be setting up? <laughs> this again, it, it hasn't been. We haven't come across this conversation yet with uh, with the Ministry of Investment. We just know that they will need an RHQ license to be able to go and bid on these uh, on these government projects. And also, it's important that it's not just to start new projects. It will also be for any of these companies that are currently working with government projects in Saudi Arabia will also need this RHQ license to keep. Uh, working on these government projects as well. That's interesting because if you're halfway through executing a project, I mean, no one's going to say put your tools down, stop building, are they? You would assume not. And that's why I would encourage every company to have conversations with somebody uh, to discuss discuss these uh, important aspects. When this was first announced, February 2021, I think, the big conversation was about who needed to be in the office, wasn't it? One of the big conversations. Where have we got to on that? So where we are right now is that you will need to hire 15 employees within the first 12 months of operating in Saudi Arabia and getting your license. Those 15 employees can be of uh, all nationalities. They don't have to be local Saudi nationals. You will also need three C-level executives uh, to also be in that Saudi Arabian entity in the RHQ company. What are the Saudiization requirements, though? For the RHQ, you actually have a 10-year exemption on the Saudiization requirements. For the commercial activity, it will vary depending on... Uh, size of company, the types of activities that you're doing. Uh, So it's very much kind of a case-by-case basis. So who is talking to you? Who are you seeing actually pick up these licences as first movers in terms of sector and in terms of where they're coming from? Yeah, it's a good question. We get a whole mix of inquiries, and I think it's very uh, important that it's the this is very much targeting your big kind of multinational companies. You do need three branches around the world to be able to qualify to get an RHQ license. So you can't just be a local golf company? So you can't just be a local golf company. So if we're only based here in the UAE, you wouldn't actually qualify for an RHQ license in Saudi Arabia. So does that mean if you're a local UAE company, even if you go and set up a commercial office in Saudi, you wouldn't be able to bid for government contracts? No. So basically, there is this kind of uh, grey area at the moment where if the company is uh, unable to qualify for an RHQ license, they would still be able to work with the government contracts. Um, But what they would need to have is a commercial company, a, a company with commercial activities in Saudi Arabia to be able to work on any of these contracts. And what we're seeing as well is that it's not just ones for government contracts. We're seeing a lot of the big corporate companies also tell companies that you will need to have a company registered in Saudi Arabia for us to continue working with you. Uh, So it's a common trend, I think, with everyone following the government initiative in Saudi Arabia uh, to get those companies to make that move into Saudi Arabia. I interrupted you. You were telling me who's actually made the move. Uh, yes. Yeah, so we're seeing a whole array of se- uh, sectors. Obviously, construction is a big sector at the moment. Uh, we're also seeing a lot of the big consultancy firms obviously making that move into Saudi Arabia. There's a big push at the moment in tourism and events as well. Um, so these are the big ones, as well as some of the industrial and manufacturing businesses as well. Is it more likely to be companies that are already operating in Saudi in the Gulf or those who are brand new who are doing this? In theory, yes, it would be mainly the companies that are already in Saudi Arabia uh, because they've been there and they've done it. But we've seen kind of three main buckets. The main the main bucket is that one, the ones that are working on government projects and need to then therefore set up to continue working. 
We have the other ones, which are people that are being asked to work on government projects, but haven't yet made that move. And then there's the third bucket, which we're seeing a huge interest in at the moment, particularly with all of the news coming out of Saudi Arabia, which are the ones that are getting uh, interested about the projects, but aren't able to even see or bid on any of these projects because they don't even have a commercial uh, company yet in Saudi Arabia. Uh, so we're seeing those big push on all three of those. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Alex Nichols, Head of Saudi Arabian Expansion and Community at the Setup and Licensing Specialists, Astro Labs. Thanks for your time. Thank you so much. Catch up on the business headlines with the Bite Size Business Breakfast. Whereas Brandy says, we're talking gold. Now I ain't saying she a gold digger, but she ain't messing with no broke, broke. Now I ain't saying she a gold digger. And that is because the latest report from the World Gold Council is out. Their Q3 report joining us in the studio to give us some insight is the head of the Middle East and public policy at the World Gold Council, Andrew Naylor. Morning, Andrew. Hello, good morning. So our top story this morning is that it looks like gold demand fell in Q3, not by much, by about 3% to 1,147 tonnes. That's on a global level. What's your reading? Well, there are a number of reasons for that. First of all, I would say gold is a dual asset. So by that, we mean that there's investment demand and there's consumer demand. Now, uh, we spoke in the earlier segment or just before the break that quite a high gold price at the moment. That does have an impact on consumer demand, in particular jewellery demand, which was down. But if you look at investment demand, that's actually up quite significantly by about 56% at the moment. And that's because of economic uncertainty, geopolitical uncertainty, the need for a safe haven. So it is a little bit of a mixed picture. But the one thing that has been consistent over the last uh, couple of years has been the activities of central banks. They've been net buyers since 2010. They've bought consistently uh, now over the last three quarters. They've had the best uh, three quarters, for example. They had the best uh, first half of the year. Not quite as high as a record quarter uh, two years ago. But central banks driven by the PBOC, the National Bank of Poland, by Turkey again, they're really driving interest in, in gold. Why do they want it? Well, for a number of reasons. First of all, it's a physical asset. And when you own it outright, it's nobody else's liability. There's no credit risk. So it can be considered a safe haven. That's one element. But the main element really is just gold's performance. It protects against risk. It's a portfolio diversifier so that you can mitigate against some of the economic and geopolitical uncertainties. So the motivations for central banks are actually similar to the motivations for individual and other institutional investors. It's about performance. It's about having access to uh, emergency sources of finance. It's a liquid asset, and it's about diversifying and mitigating risk. Looking at the report, you say that consumer demand is down a little bit. I mean, just a couple of percentage points year on year. And the, the reason you attribute to that, or one of them, is the rising cost of living. People have just got less disposable income. Talk us through that. Well, that's right. Yeah, I mean, consumers tend to be a bit more price sensitive. So there are obviously a number of factors that, that play into the decision making. One is obviously the uh, the cost of living. We've also seen in some markets that are a bit more price sensitive. So in Asia, for example, Thailand is, is a very interesting market where they're very reactive to, to price. During COVID, there was a lot of selling because uh, individuals needed emergency funding. Now that the price is high, so three years after COVID, there's a lot of selling because individuals actually want to bank in some of the, the profits. So it re- consumer behavior t- does vary between, between markets. But I would say certainly in, in markets where we're struggling with high inflation, a lot of the Western markets, for example, that has had an impact 
on their on consumer demand, particularly for jewelry. But the other element of consumer demand is bars and coins. That's driven more by long-term uh, investment decision-making uh, attributes. Let's talk about the story here in Dubai and the UAE, down in the gold souk and other parts of the UAE. That's right. I mean, in particular, jewellery. Bar and coin demand is up in the UAE, but, but the UAE is, is primarily, when it comes to consumers, a jewellery market. It's one of the largest uh, markets in the world in terms of trading. But when you look at what happens uh, in the jewellery sector, very, very significant market. But what's unique about the UAE is a lot of those people who are buying uh, jewellery here, they're not necessarily from the UAE. They're tourists, they're visiting, and the, their buying behavior is really a reflection of, of the economics of the home country, not necessarily what's happening here in the UAE. But the local gold price, it is up. It's up quite significantly, and that does tend to, to dampen jewelry demand. So where would jewelry demand here be versus this time last year? It's down, it's down by about 15% year on year. So that, that's, quite a, that's quite a fall. But I would also add, there's, there's two factors. One I've just mentioned is the price. But also, if you look at last year, we had a very high, high base effect. So Q3 last year actually was, was, was very, very high when it came to demand. And that was partly because of a, a COVID bounce and a resumption of tourism and things like that. So comparing year on year, we actually uh, also need to take into account the, the, the high base effect of, of a year ago. Let's have a look at a couple of other factors that move the gold price. Interest rates, always one of them. Higher interest rates, typically, all things equal, tend not to be good for gold. Have a listen to Christine Lagarde speaking just a few days ago. The European Central Bank kept rates on hold for the first time in more than a year, but there's a sting in the tail in her comments. She warns that they, they may jump up sometime soon. Our mission is price stability. We have defined it in our strategy review as 2%. We are not at 2%. The best tools that we can use to return inflation to 2% are our interest rates. And this is what we are using. And I just want to mention that the fact that we are holding doesn't mean to say that we will never hike again. ECB last week, Fed on Wednesday night. How are these interest rates, these higher interest rates impacting gold? Well, yeah, you said, I mean, as you said, higher interest rates, they're a headwind for gold um, uh, and uh, a strong US dollar, which is obviously linked to, uh, uh, to US interest rates. And that's because of the opportunity cost um, uh, when you have... Uh, higher interest rates, income-bearing uh, products uh, tend to perform better, and that's at a, at a cost of, of gold demand. And that's actually what we've seen in the institutional investment space for the last couple of years. Um, we've seen uh, outflows from ETFs, for example, consistently, particularly in Western markets, so in North America, in the UK, in Germany. And this is where the world's largest ETFs are, are domiciled. We've seen outflows. Um, now, they're, ten- they're, they're starting to soften, but the real reason, the main reason for that is, is interest rates and uncertainty about interest rates. And certainly, I think that most believe that higher interest rates are here to stay for, for longer than perhaps we envisaged uh, at the beginning of this year. Andrew, can't let you go without a quick word for our crypto bros listening this morning, the Bitcoin billionaires. I'm going to be a Bitcoin billionaire, spending money like I don't care. Tom, you've been keeping an eye on some of the messages coming in. Arno, regular Business Breakfast listener, advocate strongly of Bitcoin. He's been in touch. Yeah, 
I think the very mention of the word gold, amongst others. Um, yeah, long, long message from Arno. Thank you very much indeed. Gold's reliability as a store of value has waned notably over the past decade, it uh, says. I mean, they're just the relationship between uh, cryptocurrencies and gold. It's an interesting one, isn't it? It is, yeah. I mean, they're completely different assets. Yeah. And actually, I would say gold is complementary because gold uh, you know, mitigates against risk. I would argue that with, with crypto, there's quite a lot of risk. There's potential for upside for sure, but it's a very volatile asset. But you've got regulatory risk, you've got market risk, you've got counterparty risk. Um, and if you want to mitigate some of that, I would argue if you are uploading on risky assets, perhaps you want to diversify with a reasonable allocation to, to gold. So you could argue that they're quite complementary in terms of uh, their role in a portfolio because it's different, they're different. But when you look at the assets themselves, completely different assets, gold, it's a physical asset, you've got technology demand, you've got central bank demand, you've got jewelry demand, you've got investment demand. And uh, the drivers behind these different sectors of demand are very, very different. With crypto, it's a speculative asset, uh, mainly for investment investment purposes. You certainly don't get central bank demand for, for crypto. It's not a reserve asset. and I doubt it will ever be. Uh, you certainly don't have technology demand for the crypto itself, maybe for the platforms that support, support crypto, but not for the asset itself. So very, very different, mm. different roles in a portfolio can actually sit side by side. Andrew, great talk. You appreciate your time this morning. Head of the Middle East and also public policy at the World Gold Council. Latest Q3 report is out. Appreciate your time this morning, Andrew Naylor. Thank you. Just the highlights. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast. We are early days, early doors, if you like, in the latest Dubai Fitness Challenge. It's DFC 2023. It's got a ring to it this year. Seventh edition uh, of the challenge. Amazing that. Uh, where have the last seven years gone? But uh, is it going to have the impact that previous years have is going to be bigger and better. Well, let's ask uh, one man who's at the very heart of it. Co-founder of Gym Nation, the brand was set up uh, to disrupt the um, fitness industry back in 2017. Uh, Ant Martland is with us here in studio. And always good to see you. Uh, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having us back. So, uh, simplistic question just to kick things off. As I mentioned there, what, seventh edition, you've pretty much, you and the team, been involved since day well, year one uh, of this one as well. If we look at Dubai Fitness Challenge as a means of getting more people active, is it working? Absolutely. I'm going to say black or white, 100% working. So yeah, DFC launched the first one in 2017. Gymnation opened 2018. So we've been involved in now five of them. So we've got all the data, all the insights to show that, um, you know, it is impacting fitness penetration and, you know, it's doing a fantastic job for keeping people healthy and well throughout the city. So give us, uh, give our listeners and viewers an idea about how a brand like Gym Nation can um, partner with Dubai Fitness Challenge and how it works for you guys as well. Yeah, I think first of all, I mean, we were just talking off air, it's, it's bigger and better every single year. You know, the PR this year, the social media coverage, I was just looking at the number of events, you know, that are available, everything from paddleboarding to mountain biking, you know, and a lot of people say to us, do all these three events this month impact uh, gymnation, impact the visits, impact the sales? And I think the, the adverse, you know, the opposite is true there. We work very closely with the DFC team. You know, mm. the DFC team actually start planning their event about eight months before. We'll probably sit with them two, two three months before we launch or DFC launches to work out how we can you know, integrate into them and how they can integrate to us. A lot of people think that they're competition to us and uh, you know, our sales go down, our visits go down and it's completely the opposite. You know, our members are you know, 
wanting to get their 30 days of fitness in. Um, Non-members are coming in to try, try out the gym, coming in with their friends to you know, make the most of our free offers, free classes. And, you know, I think for us, we really see the uptick in the, the last week and the, and the two weeks kind of after DFC. And I guess it's very similar to the New Year effect, you know, that, that interest and that demand to kind of continue on that journey that you've started. So that was going to be my follow-up question. Yeah, yeah good to see. And, and, and you make a perfect comparison there. Yeah, we get over the Christmas, New Year time. 1st of January, the start of fresh, etc. It sort of almost has that same impact. People are heading out. Per- the weather's perfect as well. Do you hold on to those members? Have you got an uptick in membership during Dubai Fitness Challenge? Do you hold on to them? Yeah, absolutely. So we, we see the uptick, as I said, in the, in the last week and, and the following two weeks after DSC has ended. And definitely those members stay. You know, a lot of them are brand new to fitness. You know, we typically say that kind of 30, 35% of all our new memberships each month are have never been involved with fitness before. Um, that number probably increases five to 10% in, in the two weeks following DSC because, you know, DSC provides that door into fitness for people. So whether you, you know, you're one extreme as people doing Ironmans every day, the other extreme is people are just getting out of their families and walking. And even just walking provides that access into, you know, into getting into the habit and people want to continue that post, post DSC. Talking of, post as well obviously yeah the, the, the one of the themes is to get people active not just during the 30 days but afterwards as well but what about you guys as well what do you learn from dfc and can you then feed that data that you mentioned because you're a very data-driven company back to the organizers about how you can improve next year yeah look i think what we learn from dfc is there's a huge underlying demand for fitness here you know everyone wants it everyone wants to be involved with it and everyone wants to take part in something like i said whether it's you know, walking or, a, you know, a very high intensity, you know, group exercise class. So what, what it's enabled us to do is, is kind of develop our product offering. You know, as a result of what we're seeing in DFC, we're, we are implementing kind of a, a wider range of classes to take into account, you know, different ages, different fitness abilities. Um, you know, so that, that feedback that we get from DFC and the crowd coming into DFC, you know, ultimately enhances our product as well. So it's a similar sort of well, mission statement, I suppose, as, as what you set out on with your co-founders back in 2017 to sort of, you know, shake up the business here as well. I remember when you did set up and you were saying one of the things you were addressing was the cost of gym memberships here and the fact that we'd ranked in what the top three or something like that, somewhere in the world. Yep. Has that changed? In terms of a price of gym memberships here? Look, or I is think, it still an expen- expensive place to work out here? I think overall it is still fairly expensive. I think but what we have done... You know, we've come into a market and we've broken down that barrier. So we are making it easier. We are making fitness more accessible for everyone. And like you said, it is a similar mission to what DSC have. Mm. You know, we're both, you know, we're a commercial entity. They're a government initiative. But ultimately, we share the same goal in, in getting people active, keeping people active, making fitness accessible. And, and regardless of that age, regardless of your capabilities, ultimately, you know, we're on the same page of working together to make, you know, the UAE the most active country in the world. And, and, you know, as long as we're working together to do that, then it's, it's great for everyone else. Let's talk about the Gym Nation commercial project at the moment. How many in the UAE now? We have 11 in the UAE now, close to, very close to 60,000 members. And GCC? Um, Q1 next year will be, will be a big focus. Watch this space, Watch yeah? Watch this space, yeah. We've got, uh, we're actually planting a flag in another city. We're opening um, Gym Nation Alain. So the founder membership page for that will open actually today at 2 p.m., so that's an exciting, another exciting project. We've got kind of three or four more uh, UAE announcements to make. 
within the next uh, within the next month or two, hopefully. And then, yeah, definitely all eyes are on GCC. So s- s- serious potential here still in the region for you? Yeah, absolutely. Look, we're very much going to continue what we've been doing here. You know, we do see some space and, and some more demanding areas that we, we're not quite in just yet within the UAE. Um, you know, and, and then for us, it's very much... You know, replicating the success we've had here and taking that success and into a kind of GCC rollout. Look, busy time for you and the Gym Nation team. So we can't thank you enough for, for getting up bright and breezy on a Monday morning. Speak to us. Uh, Ant Martland is co-founder of Gym Nation. Thanks. Enjoy the fitness challenge. Thanks, guys. Thank you. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast, exclusively on DubaiEye1038.com. You've been listening to a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. To enjoy lots more from Dubai Eye in the United Arab Emirates, just go to DubaiEye1038.com or find them wherever you normally get your podcasts.